1: on Truth and Movies. The Miseducation of Cameron Post, featuring Chloe Grace Moretz as a teenage girl forced into a gay conversion therapy camp. Now you're officially a disciple of God's promise. Welcome. American Animals. Is this a doc or is it a heist thriller? Find out as we case the joint on Bart Layton's genre mashup. That
2: thing that could uh, make your life
1: special. And for Film Club, it's back to 1999 for the cult coming out comedy, But I'm a Cheerleader. That won't take gay for an answer. Welcome, welcome, welcome. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So here we are, the 70th episode of Truth and Movies. It's Michael Leader back here in the host chair after a week away at the Venice Film Festival. I'm joined this week by returning contributor Rowan Woods. Hi, Rowan.
0: Hi, lovely to be back.
1: And a first-timer, James Luxford. Hello there. Welcome, James. So let the people know who you are.
2: I am a film critic. I uh, review films for The White Lies, Radio Times, Metro, City AM, mm. anyone will have me, basically, and uh, almost everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Any particular sort of film you're into above others, or you're an all around Yeah, such an unsatisfying answer, isn't it? I like a bit of everything, but um, I grew up on 90s independent cinema, I suppose, that independent boom of people like uh, Quentin Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, things like that. But I think you review films for a living, you sort of have to have an appreciation for a bit of everything.
1: Yeah, very very wise words there. (laughs) We'll get to 90s cinema shortly, but first we'll review a film set in the 1990s. Our first film today is The Miseducation of Cameron Post. It's 1993, and young Cameron is caught kissing another girl on prom night. She's soon sent to a gay conversion therapy camp to cure her of her same-sex attraction. This is the second feature film from actor-writer-director Desiree Akavan, although here she's only operating behind the camera. Here's a clip from the trailer. All that's left is your signature, and we're good to go. Now you're officially a disciple of God's promise. Welcome!
2: Welcome to God's promise.
1: And You are at an age where you are especially vulnerable to evil.
2: Change will come through God, but within me.
1: We're going to spend our time together investigating what led you here. In the past, I would resort to self-pleasure, but then when I learned that that was a sin also, I stopped.
0: Cameron, your struggle is with the sin of same-sex attraction. You're facing the consequences of your actions, and it's ugly.
1: So, James, was this ugly or otherwise?
2: <laughs> I think it's one of those films that um, you sort of wince because of how accurate it is in some senses, mm-hmm. I think, Um or, or in as much as you know, this is real life. It's very downplayed. There's not mm. a lot of dramatic moments or Hollywood narrative techniques, if you like. There's mm-hmm. no. I was really surprised as the film went on. There was no big showdowns. Mm. There was no maybe a little bit, a little bit spoilery, but no kind of romantic subplot. Yeah. Once you got to the camp, and um, I just found it really interesting. I, I found it really painful because you you realise at certain intervals these are just kids Mm -hmm. and and they've done anything wrong and perhaps I'm sort of seeing it from more of a personal perspective being part of the LGBT Mm. community and in another life potentially an inmate but there is this kind of incredulous feeling of they've done literally nothing wrong. Uh Uh It's not like she's burnt down the school or Assaulted someone, mm-hmm. or or shown any kind of behaviour, and it's a difficult watch at times. I found, but also just it's so incredibly well written and acted.
1: Mm. What was it that was hard to watch? If you really say that,
2: I think that just the innocence of what was being, um, you know, forced out of them. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a very innocent thing, falling in love with someone. You know, Cameron Post. Isn't someone, as we talk about in But I'm a Cheerleader, there's a a difference in that Cameron Post knows she's gay Mm. and doesn't really, when she comes in, believe that there is anything wrong with that. But there's this wall of adulthood pressing her and and, and her peers and this kind of stereotypes that are uh, forced upon them, like Mm -hmm. one character is belittled for having long hair and Mm. Cameron Post, her first um, interaction with Jennifer Ely's character who runs the camp is uh, that she has a very masculine name Mm -hmm. and she says, oh, call me Cam and she says, no, Cameron's already a very masculine name, there's no need to make it any more masculine. Mm -hmm. So working on these kind of awful stereotypes that did and to some extent still do exist mm-hmm. stings a little bit watching
1: yeah true and Rowan this is Desiree Khan's second film after Appropriate Behaviour what did you make of this?
0: I loved Appropriate Behaviour um, and it felt it's a very distinctive vehicle for her for her mm-hmm. voice it is a big step up as you say it's it's quite a quiet sort of watchful, subdued film. And I think so much of that is because of Chloe Moretz's performance, which is a very she's sort of quiet and and, and observing so much of the way the way through. But I think because it feels like such a quiet and subdued film I think it gives space to see that actually there's not that much visually going on either. Mm. I think in some ways it feels like visually quite a pedestrian film, potentially slightly televisual. And I don't mean that to sound quite as negative as it it, it does, but it's not showy. It doesn't feel the need to sort of announce itself in quite the same way that that something like Appropriate Behaviour did. Mm -hmm. And this doesn't feel like quite as spiky or distinctive a film. And in some ways I think you know one could say it's um it's a much more grown up film but I think, in some ways, it do, it doesn't feel quite as distinctive. Mm-hmm.
1: And you say spiky and distinctive, which is you know, two words you can very much describe Lesley Akavan with. You know, whenever you see her interviewed or in person, she's so full of character and so full of so eloquent, but also so pointed in the things she says. So yeah. it was interesting to watch this film, and as you say, as it develops, it is this character piece. It's not a showy film. It's not necessarily even a um, an angry film. Mm. Would you would you say so, James? No, I don't think I... a <laughs>
2: was a little wary of mm. films uh, featuring sort of hardline religion because it can go too far off the deep end, in as much as, uh, you know, with the fire and brimstone mm-hmm. and, and characters that are quite broad. But once again, um, when watching uh, Jennifer Ely's character, I thought of Nurse Ratchet from <laughs> One of mm-hmm. Cuckoo's Nest in that there's nothing cackly, there's nothing pantomime villain, there's nothing broad. She believes she's helping. And she believes she's literally doing God's work. Mm-hmm. And I found that really striking. Uh, and, and I suppose from a, a little bit infuriating, but I suppose that's kind of the point. I suppose if you're talking about spiking and subversive, that's the perfect way to mm. portray someone like that. Mm. They, they also are stepping your expectations of what this person should be. Mm. She's not quoting Bible verses. She's not particularly violent. There's little flashes of violence or aggression, Mm -hmm. but it's very underplayed. It's very simmering beneath the surface and that kind of quiet authority and what I was aware of throughout was kind of, you always wonder, why don't you just tell them to do one, <laughs> um, but there is that authority of grown-ups, mm-hmm. that the authority of the establishment, and the terror of standing up to that establishment, and what happens when the establishment doesn't have your best interests, mm-hmm. or it, it thinks it does, but. You, it doesn't. It's doing you harm rather than doing good.
0: And I think as soon as you turn someone into a a pantomime villain and a caricature, it becomes so easy to dismiss whatever their viewpoint is and that and that rhetoric. But because that character, as you say, isn't turned into a villain in that way, it makes her point of view so much more insidious and harder mm-hmm. to um, kind of rail against.
1: And there is this sense as you say about it's the world of adults that these mm. children are just subject to. The opening scene is a Sunday school class where the the, the pastor, whoever it is, is saying that pretty, pretty much every instinct and urge you have as a teenager is going to send you to hell You know, mm. so to atone for it for the rest of your life. Mm. And there's just no sense of just let kids be kids. There's a, there's a pretty wonderful scene in the film which is very well written where Cameron Post and uh, Jennifer Ely's character having uh, a conversation where it's, you know, wh- who do you think you are? Do you, do you need to mm. stop thinking you're homosexual? And Cameron Post says, well, I, I don't think of myself as anything. In the source novel by Emily Danforth, the characters are 12 years old, which is uh, m- maybe adds an extra insidiousness to this because they're forcing these urges and sexual identities on 12-year-olds, whereas in the film, they're 17, they're a bit older. Mm. But it's this sense of finding your true identity or not needing to put a a label on yourself so early in your life that seems so contemporary, even though it's a film from the 1990s.
2: A disquieting thought I think Mm. I had during it as well is that it is a period film, but it's very relevant. Mm. And uh, one thing I thought that really gave me pause was that there would be certain demographics in certain areas of the world... Where this film would be read very differently.
1: Oh really? How, how so?
2: Um I'm trying to be polite. <laughs> okay. um, if someone who had those beliefs about LGBT issues, uh this would be a, a tragedy where Cameron Post was you know, mm-hmm. these people people trying to save Cameron Post and she walks away from it. And mm-hmm. I don't think those demographics are probably gonna be queuing up to see it. But um it does remind you that this is a relevant topic this is relevant, a, ever relevant yeah. this isn't um, a look back at how things were the usefulness of you know, placing it in the 90s is perhaps you know the absence of, of social media and, mm-hmm. and technology but at the same time it very well could have been you know set last
1: month exactly yeah a time when it could be very easy to not realize there's a whole community out there just oh, like yeah. you or yeah. it's reflected in the media or wherever. any further points Rowan on
0: the film I think You know, just to slightly go back to to what I was saying sort of earlier about it—it feeling slightly underwhelming in some ways. You know, there's a version of this film that's you know viewed now outside that initial Sundance bubble where people first Mm -hmm. saw it and sort of went went crazy for it. That now feels, I don't know, it feels a little bit sort of Sundance by numbers. Mm -hmm. But I do think you know for the fact of it being a queer story about a young queer woman directed by a queer woman mm-hmm. that feels that's really significant and also there's something about its sort of quietness and its maturity of tone that means that what it's doing in telling this story it feels like it's quite a kind of subversively smuggling something quite radical into what's becoming quite a mainstream, what becomes quite a mainstream film.
1: Mm-hmm. It's interesting, the sense of authenticity. One thing that I think many reviews focus on, it's perhaps taking a mature film and approaching it with, with a more immature eye. Is they're focusing on the sex scenes or love scenes in the movie. And Desiree Akron talks about this in interviews where she allows the teenagers to almost self-direct these scenes. And again, it's this Sundance by Numbers conversation where authenticity or reality or documentary uh, realism is tantamount to everything. There's so much more to the film than that if you read a review or read a feature that focuses in on that.
2: I think that's always the case though Mm -hmm. with any film that features love scenes or... Mm intensely sexual scenes, that's what makes the headlines and mm-hmm. thinking sort of shame or something like that mm-hmm. when there is so much more to the story. Um, it's just a consequence of it and I think the absence of, as you said, uh, queer stories in our cinemas means that that is unique because it's not something that's seen a lot. Mm-hmm. Whereas perhaps a love scene in a, in, in, in a straight context because exactly, have been yeah. as
1: heralded or talked about discussed or mm-hmm. so i think we should wrap this up we'll be coming back to queer stories by queer filmmakers about queer young women um for film club but uh, let's put some scores james uh, you've not been on before, but we have three scores mm-hmm. in the review section it's in, in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect would you mm-hmm. like to give your three scores for this i think probably fours all the way mm-hmm. i think
2: um i'd heard a little bit about it from the festival circuit and i really enjoyed the unique way it told a story that very easily could have wandered into the melodramatic and coming away from it, I think, you know, there are little things, as you said, you know, like visually, it's maybe not as adventurous, but uh, I, I enjoyed it, yeah. Fours across the board from yeah. James, Rowan?
0: Um, I'd say probably four or five in anticipation. I was mm-hmm. really psyched for this film. Um, then I'd say three for enjoyment mm-hmm. and probably three three in retrospect,
1: very good. So that was The Miseducation of Cameron Post in cinemas this week. Up next, we're going to American Animals. <laughs> Director Bart Layton returns after his BAFTA winning documentary, The Imposter, with this curious mix of doc and drama that tells the true story of an art robbery on an American college campus perpetrated by four middle-class lads looking for something to shake up their boring lives. Here's a clip featuring Barry Keoghan and Evan Peters, who star as Spencer and Warren, the two ringleaders.
0: So did you
2: meet any new cool people over there? No. Bunch of jocks. You? No. uh uh-uh. it's not what I thought it would be. I wonder he ended up being born you here and not someone else or you ever feel like you're you're waiting for something to happen but you don't know what it is is that thing that could uh, make your life special? Yeah. Like what? Exactly.
1: So, Rowan, we heard from Bart Layton on the live episode a couple of weeks ago of Truth and Movies. This film is a sort of strange hybrid of documentary talking heads and a very dramatised heist thriller. Um, could you describe how that works in the film and uh, how, what that brings?
0: I mean, he described it as an existential heist movie, mm. and it's both a film that really um, revels in its identity as a heist movie, and it feels like such a confident fiction debut for Bart Layton after after The Imposter, which was which was primarily a, a documentary, and it's directed with. such sort of swagger and brio and has such energy and in its editing and the use of music cues and in its performances, I thought it was really, really confident and fantastic. In many ways, it's sort of a classic heist movie and it's telling the story mm. of this botched robbery um, that, that this team of um, four high school students planned. But the, um, the sort of tricky pulls is to also have the real mm. characters, the real now slightly more grown up um, students telling their version of events. Mm often conflicting version of events a device that you know, we saw in a sort of fictionalised way in something like um, *Itonia*. Exactly, yeah. And it allows him to play with the idea of memory and the idea of sort of fact and fiction, and the way we um, sort of, you know, imagine or fictionalise our past. And it also then uh, adds another layer to the way that the um, you then have um, professional actors playing those characters in the past and sort of playing out the kind of the heist version of, of, the, of the way they m- remember that mm-hmm. period. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really, really had such a great time with it, and Barry Keoghan, who plays Spencer, sort of the main, the, the main guy, again proving himself to be one of the most exciting young young actors around. Mm-hmm. I don't know if um, any of you saw him in um, Rebecca Daly's Mammal. That was the first thing I saw right. him in a couple of a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, and he was so so striking, and this mixture of. Um, sort of fully formed kind of masculine swagger but at the same time still being something of a, a, a of a boy mm-hmm. and then seeing him in things like um, Dunkirk but um, Killing of a Sacred Deer I think he's really 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 fantastic
1: Yeah and James how did you uh, take this film I think the a unique I, one isn't it? I concur
2: with a lot of uh, what Rowan said but the thing that really struck me and I really enjoyed about it was the prize the prize wasn't Money. The prize mm. wasn't a valuable thing. The thing they were after was doing something extraordinary. And I think there's something so accessible. I think I agree with all you said about the direction and subverting a lot of what we would expect from a heist film or a, a film based on true events. But for me, what I, what I really noticed when I was was watching it was. It's so accessible, the perspective of those young men, they might be a little bit obnoxious, they might be a little bit arrogant. However, they are at that point in their life where you're about to launch off into the world. Mm. And everyone has been at that age and wanted to do something extraordinary or feel they are meant to do something Extraordinary, and this is kind of a poisoned version of that. They don't go on a gap year, um, they don't, you know, they don't know do an internship at a glamorous company. Their version of this is to rob a very valuable book, and it's they don't really know what they're doing, they don't really know how they're going to do it, and um, it, it's as illustrated in that wonderful sequence. It's very Ocean's Eleven, set to um, Elvis, a little less conversation, mm-hmm. and it's the very slick, you know, kind of synchronized. Version of the robbery, then one of them cuts in and goes, That's completely impractical. <laughs> and I, I love that. And I, I love that in making it so much more relatable, uh, I was so much more along for the ride. Mm-hmm. You know, I that, said that the tray, the moment when they were all walking up to the, um, the library dressed as old men. my heart was really going. (laughs) I was like, this is real stakes here. Mm -hmm. Not just because, you know, they might go to prison, but what they're after is not the money. What they're after is that experience. And as opposed to a straightforward crime thriller, it just makes it so much more tense and so much more engrossing.
1: Mm. Does the film run the risk of celebrating the crime they tried to perpetrate then, do you think?
0: I don't know. I don't think Mm. so. I mean, make no mistake, you have a really good time (laughs) watching them plan this heist, and the film is such good company, Mm -hmm. such sort of intoxicating company. But I think, as as you were just saying, uh, James, it's um, as much a sort of probing study of a certain kind of sort of white middle class Mm. American masculinity and the entitlement that comes with that and this desire to sort of be somebody and to think that you can I suppose in a um, the the sort of kind of internet uh, social media age we we live in now that anyone can become somebody or sort of Mm. feels that they are entitled to become successful and Mm. wealthy and famous by not really doing all that much and I think it really sort of digs into that. It's not heavy handed Mm. um, and it's something that That is absolutely there, and I think is there all the way through. And it's you know it's Mm. there in the title. It's as this study of this very particular kind of male American animal, and a particular kind of American American sort of psyche. Mm -hmm. Um, So. I think it's not just about watching these guys do this really cool thing and, you know, let's have a great time with it. Um, I think there is this real sort of undercutting all the way through and this analysis about what sense of entitlement and what sense of, you know, what sort of cultural um, conditioning has, uh, you know, it sort of uh, produces this kind of American animal.
2: It's something that reminded me a little bit of... um, Martin Scorsese that he does in certain films I think in Goodfellas and The Wolf of Wall Street where he lets you have a good time with the character and then he has little moments that stud the narrative Mm. with these aren't good people you're laughing with them you may like them you may even want to be them they're not good people and I don't think Leighton's quite as as harsh but it's studded with moments where like these are idiot kids, Mm -hmm. you know, then they don't know what they're doing. Um, You're enjoying your time with them, they're funny, they're interesting. And it's a really good example of how, you know, you don't necessarily have to like the heroes for them to be heroes, I suppose.
1: Mm -hmm. It's so intricate the way it's layered, as you say, Rowan, it's this cultural conditioning from, you know, there aren't how-to books for planning a heist, so they have to rent all of the heist movies from their local blockbuster (laughs) and then somehow figure out how to do it from there. Almost forgetting that nearly all heist movies go wrong um, mm. on, on on the big screen,
0: and it's a very kind of movie literate mm. film, isn't it? Both in terms of the characters, as you say, sort of watching heist movies to learn how on earth to pull off this this crazy plan, but the film itself, you know, feels. I think you know Bart was uh, was saying in your interview with him the, the other week that as the movie progresses, it sort of takes on the visual language of heist films and it becomes kind of slicker and bolder and bigger mm-hmm. as these kids are, are sort of imagining themselves into the movie version of, of this heist that they're, that they're planning out. Mm-hmm. It's a very um, uh, self-reflexive
2: I saw film. a, oh, sorry. Um, I saw a um, Q&A with Evan Peters as well where he said he studied the Ocean's Eleven films mm-hmm. and he said, I tried to imitate it because I knew if I imitated it, I'd look ridiculous <laughs> because I'm not George Clooney and I don't have George Clooney's lines. I said, but if I believed I was in one of those films... And I think that that comes across really well, that sense of of stepping into shoes you don't quite fill, mm-hmm. uh, or in this, uh, this case, don't really even half fill.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. Or that, you know, confidence will get you everywhere. Mm. Again, a particular kind of American it, state of mind.
1: It also speaks to a particular sort of, maybe it's a, sort of male friendship but certainly a, a, a type of friendship where maybe you're stoned or high or just high on life and you're talking and yeah. a, a suggestion is made and then through the dynamics of the, the group you go along with it, you start planning and before you know you're in over your head on something mm. and there's a, there's a scene where the real Spencer talks about just hoping that the roadblock would come along that would stop them from doing it and thinking, we never thought we'd actually do this. Mm. It reminds me of... Um, a scene in Manhattan, for example, where it's uh, Woody Allen's character is going to give a speech at a at an awards ceremony, and he's having this almost stomach bug. <laughs> until they say, "Don't worry, you don't have to do it," and then he's uh, he's suddenly cured. That's almost the experience of watching this film in a way, like you're yeah. you're hoping that they don't go through with it because they're idiot kids.
2: Yeah, I, I think this, you can't help but feel a little bit protective of them, particularly Barry Keoghan's character. In that, like you said, that aspect of, of friendship where it's a combination of that aspect of friendship where you just, you know, you, you know, your friend is probably a little bit nuts, but <laughs> you kind of love him and you want to you want sort to of harness that. And also combined with that sense of yourself wanting something spectacular to do with your life. So he's kind of always a step behind going, let's see how this goes. <laughs> I know it's probably going to blow up but it might not. So I want to be in on it if it goes well. And um, I, I think he's, he does a wonderful job being kind of the emotional core of that.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a, you know, a good cast of young actors here, not Barry and Evan Peters, who people may know from Quicksilver in, mm-hmm. the, in the X-Men movies, and um, but also Blake Jenner from... Everybody wants some, and I don't yeah. believe they have TV mm. careers as well, but I don't really watch much TV. <laughs> yeah,
0: I think um, apart from Barry Keoghan, Blake Jenner was the only one I I, I sort of recognised, and mm. and that relative um, anonymity, mm. um, I think of the casting really plays in its in its favour. Mm. You know, not only are these then sort of kind of American everymen, mm. um, these are just normal normal high schoolers mm-hmm. um, who have big dreams, and
1: if, and I think key to the entire film is Anne Dowd. Who uh, is on *The Handmaid's Tale*? She was in *Hereditary* earlier this year, and she plays a very important mm. part in this heist that that they, that they go through. The librarian who's guarding mm. the books and that's, very key to the the reading of the film in general.
2: That's the um, what I was talking about that that kind of Scorsese-ish moment of what they're doing is is wrong, mm-hmm. and, and and what they're doing has consequences. And it's fun to go along for the ride, but there are moments along there and and it's all represented through that character. And I think also maybe in the narration of the real-life heist team, the the kind of sense of regret in their voice, the kind of heaviness to the way they retell everything, apart from perhaps Warren, Mm -hmm. who who seems to have a little bit of a smirk on him. At one point it just cuts back to him with this big stupid grin on his face and you think yeah you're everything this film tells you, it says you are aren't you?" and um, it's that grounding, it's that pulling you back down of, of there are consequences to this, it's fun to watch but I think the grittiness of uh, realising what they're doing is wrong they don't know what they're doing and they could end up hurting people. Mm. Is is what keeps you so fascinated? Mm.
0: It's very clear from from watching the real guys in in, in the film. You know, these are all very um, clearly very privileged men from a certain. You know, uh, although they've been in prison, it's a particular kind of um, person who can come through something like this and still feel. Like a champion in the way that Warren the mm. Warren does, and somehow still feel like they have succeeded. And I think that's something the film also doesn't shy away from: is the fact that you know they planned this heist, it, it went wrong, they went to prison, and they've come out. And you know what? They've got this movie made about them. Mm. Um, and it's not so much that it's letting them off the hook or that it's sort of glorifying them, but it's just showing, look, you know what, This mm. it sort of lays it out there for, for you to sort of draw your own conclusions. Such a mm.
1: conversation starter, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Let's put some scores on this. Rowan, do you want to go first?
0: I'd say probably four in anticipation. I had an absolute blast watching this, so five for um, yeah. for enjoyment in the, in the moment um, and five in hindsight. I think it's fantastic.
2: Uh, James? Fives across the board. <laughs> Sorry to be... Uh, Uniform again, but I really enjoyed The Imposter. Mm-hmm. So it was a a point where um you know just from the maker of The Imposter, whatever it was, I and mean, I was I was going along with it. Again, really enjoyed it. And I think the, um, the amount I've come away from the film with in terms of thinking about the characters, in terms of thinking about the morality, about it, I think that's a sign of a really good film. Mm-hmm.
1: And actually, if you wanted to watch The Impostor before or after American Animals, it's up on YouTube in full on the Real Stories Documentaries channel I found out the other day, mm-hmm. which is handy. It sounds like a very strong week for new releases. But up next, we have Film Club and it's But I'm a Cheerleader.
0: Ready to pop the question?
1: But she has a terrible problem. You don't even like to kiss me.
0: We think you're a lesbian.
1: So now, they're sending her to a place. It's only for a few months.
0: Rehab, honey. Uh, homosexuals
1: anonymous. That won't take gay for an answer.
0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Looks like we got you just in time. I shouldn't even be here. You don't have any unnatural
2: thoughts? I don't think it's unnatural. Aha!
1: So that's uh, the clip from the trailer of But I'm a Cheerleader. Such similar source material to Cameron Post, but so different tonally. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do have a couple of comments from Twitter. Uh, Addison Wiley says... uh, Uh, the film has a hard time not looking and sounding like a John Waters knockoff, but it's a very funny and satisfying movie. And Eleanor on Twitter says, maybe because of its central lesbian storyline, it flew under the radar for mainstream audiences. But this is not only a crucial film in so many people's personal coming-out stories, mine included, it's also really funny, smart, and just a great film. So it's become something of a cult classic after being a bit of a non-starter on release. James, were you a fan? Was this a first-time watch for you, or have you seen it before?
2: It was... um just saying in, important in, in people's stories, I came out as bisexual later in, in life as an adult but this came out around the time I was a teenager mm-hmm. and still very closeted and there's a particular scene uh, the intervention scene, I remember seeing it and it just being a little bit too real for me at that point I wasn't quite ready for it so I do remember uh, very much the film from being uh, younger and look, uh, having um, looked at it Post coming out, and it's just a very charming kind of satire of that world. It it, it takes a shot at that kind of institution, as I think you probably only could at that time. Mm -hmm. I think maybe with a bit more of a cheeky kind of um, perspective and and little nods like uh, RuPaul being one of the counsellors and being very butch and uh, And does a great job uh, like I say, but um, as the tweet said it 's very John waters. It shares that um kind of Tim Burton aspect of making suburbia and conformity through very vivid colours mm-hmm. and very extreme hairstyles seem nightmarish, but a very sweet kind of satire on um sexuality on Uh, America's attitudes towards it particularly then really made me laugh the um, stereotypes that were thrown out you know one of the reasons that that Natasha Leone's character is believed to be a lesbian is because she's a vegetarian She (laughs)
0: likes tofu She likes (laughs) tofu,
2: exactly and I really and, and you know the reason those things are in a in a satire is because that's what certain people believed, mm-hmm. and I thought it was very charming. I think mm-hmm. it maybe wasn't even trying to scratch the the kind of uh, areas that uh, Cameron Cameron Post is trying to, but I think for the time, it's quite a daring film. Yeah, and quite a very very witty film
1: as well. Yeah, it's so interesting. I love looking back in Film Club but Genre from decades past and this is such a an interesting film to see where queer cinema was at that time and Mm. where teen movies were at that time this shares so much more dna with american pie and you know not another teen movie and all these other films that were coming out around the same time rowan what did you make of the time a cheerleader
0: yeah i mean it's very 90s isn't it i think um it it came out the same year as american pie Mm. and and natasha uh, lyon is also in american Mm -hmm. Pie. Obviously, i hadn't seen it before Mm. but it reminded me so much of those of the kinds of films that meant so much to me and played such a huge part in my life at the time but there was nothing out there sort of like like that that was dealing with sexuality in that same sort of way you know the films I all watched all, all revolved around a very kind of heteronormative mm. sort of romance plot I thought it was fun I think it's it's a sort of satirical kind of campy kitsch version of, of Cameron Post mm-hmm. and it's doing something quite um, sort of smart with gender conformity and gender roles but I think it's also quite it's quite heavy handed and it's quite <laughs> Quite sort of um, kind of crude in its in, in mm-hmm. its satire in in places, and I think it's probably far more important as as a kind of cultural artifact and of, and of what it means, you know, f- for the '90s and for queer cinema than it is a uh, good film, to Mm -hmm. to be honest, I I think.
1: It just shows how much of a difference two decades can make in terms of public consciousness and audience consciousness. This is a film which the bluntest of its satire would be when they're trying to force these kids back into their gender norms, they make them wear garish pink or blue clothes they have to be um, choreographed through uh, heterosexual encounters with yeah. with the classmates and so on and it's very blunt
0: yeah and have to perform classically kind of gendered uh, household tasks mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. the women have to to sew and do washing up and the men have to chop, chop wood wood, chop wood. Mm-hmm. RuPaul
1: chopping wood you know it's pretty good
2: yeah. I, I thought it was really uh, there was also a wonderful moment where um, one of the girls just says Look, I'm actually straight. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just really butch. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, don't be, don't be ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then, just no, no. I, I just wear these clothes and have this haircut. I, I really like guys. And um, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting what you said about a cultural artifact because I think that kind of voice had to be maybe a little more provocative and a little more, um, antagonistic, twenty years ago mm-hmm. than it could be now it had to poke the bear a little bit mm. in a teasing way, in a comedic way because queer cinema was so far below the mainstream with very few exceptions. Mm-hmm. Looking at the um, bridge between the two films Batamachilida Cheerleader and Cameron Post and to mark a progression, as well as you know, objectively just being two very different films. Yeah.
0: Absolutely, and and something like Cameron Post now feels like, uh, as we discussed, it's a very mainstream mainstream mm-hmm. film. Even though it sort of it, you know it has a certain Sundance kind of indie sensibility, it feels like a, a sort of slick mainstream film, and, and 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 cheerleader, you know, feels very much like it's positioning itself as an as a sort of outsiders outsider film. art. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it did
1: premiere at Sundance in 1999, mm-hmm. just to show how much the what you think of as a Sundance movie has changed, and. One of the first thank yous in the credits is Greg Araki who would make similar sort of spiky and provocative queer cinema at the time
0: mm-hmm. we should also say it's also directed by a, a queer woman mm-hmm. as cameron post is as well. and most
1: of the the crew as well are, are women as well yeah. it's you know 20 years ago that people were still trying to make that happen and mm. unfortunately we're not there yet but uh, one of the joys of watching these films for me is just seeing the cast at a certain point in their career, of course, we have Natasha Leone and Claire Duvall mm. in the main roles. Sort of the year, the year or the year before they both broke, it's the year mm. before the faculty comes out or the year that American Pie comes out. But then also, Michelle Williams has a, has a very short yes. cameo at the beginning. And, I was uh, really
2: surprised by that. I thought, mm-hmm. I think you're looking at it with a, um, um, a 2018 mindset of Academy Award <laughs> yeah. nominee, winner. Michelle Williams, and uh, back then she was uh,
0: Dawson's Creeks. Creek. Well, <laughs> yeah, Michelle Williams. Exactly, yeah.
1: But also a blink and miss, Julie Delpy.
0: Yes. yes, 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 yes exactly. yeah. She's called Lipstick Lesbian. Lipstick Lesbian. lesbian. <laughs> in the credits. <laughs>
1: and uh, for me, you know, the, the highest of, of of delights was Melanie Linsky with her actual New Zealand accent for a change. Mm. You know, at a time where she'd been in Heavenly Creatures but hadn't really landed in Hollywood yet. Um, it's full of a, a, a lot of... Lights in there. I think the soundtrack is uh, is pretty brilliant, whilst also yeah. being such a 1999-2000 indie pop, indie rock uh, sort of soundtrack. I love the...
2: the, 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 the um the very overt use of uh, the opening song, which is called Chick Habits. Yes, yes. Uh, I Recognised it from adverts and I think from Tarantino film. I think it's Death
1: Brief, isn't it? Yeah,
2: yeah. And um, I looked up the title and you go, okay. It's, 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 <laughs> it's setting the tone of being very overt and very um, cheeky in it's, it, it, its delivering of that message.
1: Mm-hmm. Terrific. Terrific. Would we recommend people seek it out if they've not
0: watched it? I think it makes a really good um, companion piece to uh, the Miseducation of Cameron yeah. Post. If you're interested in in queer cinema mm-hmm. and and in in that history, I think it's really fun. But I do think it's far more interesting as a uh, as a piece of um you know a kind of a time capsule and a, uh, a sort of cultural artifact than it, than it is as just a, a film to watch. Do
1: mm-hmm. you uh, agree?
2: Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. I think it's a, an interesting curiosity. I think it's going to be good if you absolutely adore things like uh, John Waters and um, as as we say, as a marker of how far we've come, how far cinema's come, it's just an interesting thing to look back on.
1: I just hope this puts us one step closer to doing Josie and the Pussycats as film club. One day (laughs) my personal uh, favourite under-seen and uh, underrated teen movie of the period.
0: Oh, we should do a whole episode on 90s teen movies. That would be
1: fantastic, (laughs) wouldn't it? So that was But I'm a Cheerleader. Homework for next week's film club is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Shane Black's directorial debut with Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer. That's because new releases next week are The Predator, uh, the sequel slash reboots directed by Shane Black and Lucky, Harry Dean Stanton's final movie. Um, if you want to get in touch with us and let us know what you think of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or any other films we've discussed, you can do so on Twitter at LW Lies at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or on the comments section on lwlies.com slash podcast. James, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. First time out, do you enjoy it? It was lovely, thank you. And Rowan, as always, it's a pleasure. Thank you for joining me.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: And thank you for listening, everyone. Um, this